1: For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and today we have a very interesting show for you. We have a visitor from the UK, and he is going to be talking about someone who those of you in the pastry world for sure will know. We're talking about Antonin Carême from the early 19th century, and here with us to talk about it is a master pastry Chef himself, Eric Landlord. Eric is a master pâtissier from um, London and he has written several different books. His newest one is called Tarted Up. He has uh, a shop called Cake Boy and a book by the same name, as well as uh, books on cookies and cakes and all kinds of things. And as well, Eric is a bit of a TV star, is that right?
3: <laughs> Hello, yes. <laughs> well, we got yeah, a few um we done a uh, four TV series um back in the UK. Um you know, about the baking craze. Um it's something you know in the last few years just started in the UK and suddenly baking become very popular, which is um, which is great because um not great uh, for
2: our waistlines, but n- it's great. <laughs>
3: not for the waistline, but um you know, we've been f- I've been fighting for that for uh, for ages and people used to laugh at me and saying baking nobody want to make nobody want to bake nobody want to make dessert and suddenly you know if you visit the UK you will see then On all the TV network, every single foodie magazine for the last two years, and I've been having a cake on a cover. Things you would have never thought would have happened before. So I do have the uh, the last laugh.
2: (laughs) Well, indeed, I mean, everyone loves a good cake, but your cakes are more than just... What we would make at home. I mean, you yes, indeed, you do cakes for what we make at home. But you are a master patissier and a celebrity chef to the stars, stars and the royalty. I mean, you have baked cakes for huge big names: Elton John, the Beckhams. Can you name a couple others?
3: Um, yes, I mean we've, that- we've been very lucky to um, to have um, you know some celebrity clients. They do help um, you know to, to you know with the business: um, Elizabeth Hurley, uh, Claudia Giffer as well. We always make Put a smile on people's face and say Elizabeth Hurley eat cakes, Claudia Schiffer eat <laughs> right. <laughs> cakes. Right, but actually they do and they, 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 they love their food and they know what they are talking about. Um, so which is always a great pleasure to work um, to work with. But the thing I like to remember people all the time is that you know yes we do cake, we do cake for ev- uh, celebrities, but we do cake you know for everybody as well.
2: Well, and your books are a testimony to that because the books are very approachable. The recipes are all very approachable home. Home desserts.
3: Well, that's what I always say to people. There is two sides of um, of Eric. There is um, Eric at work, obviously the trained pastry chef, uh, doing some beautiful patisseries and um, you know elaborate uh, wedding and celebration cakes. But there is Eric at home as well, and Eric never take a dessert from the shop if he entertain. So oh, really? it doesn't matter how busy I am or anything. I will never take something from the counter and take it um, uh, to, you know, serve it to my friends at home. I will always make something. That's the strict rule I got because for me, it's like cheating. And um then... people who've never been for dinner um, at my house always expect to get like Mission t- style dessert and they're a bit surprised when actually we are going to get a tatin piping hot straight from the oven, I'm going to turn it at a table with the steam and the juice oozing out, because that's my kind of baking at home, and that's the kind of thing I try to do with the um, with the books is, um, you know, to make it accessible to people and to, you know, people have been scared about baking, they think they need a lot of equipment or very you know, uh, special uh, ingredients but you know you can everybody can do it you don't have to be a a scientist you know to um, to do some great baking and it's so rewarding as well
2: Mm. well now i mentioned uh that you are a bit of a television not a bit you are quite a television star in the world of of baking and and tv food shows um with a couple different series and in case someone didn't notice by listening to you with your accent, you are uh, you are French. French living in the UK, um, and uh, you had a a very important French influence in your baking as well. I mentioned Antonin Carême. For those who don't know, tell us a little bit. You you, um, I guess became enamored by his success and his and his path, and you did some research on Carême because you did a whole series of your food shows on, on called Glamour Puds, and it was about the history of Antonin Carême, correct?
3: Yes, of course. I trained, um, I obviously trained in France, uh, in Brittany, you know, back where where I grew up, and um, Ant- Antonin Carême was uh, obviously mentioned when um, when I studied. Um, it was known as the godfather of patisserie, um, the probably the first celebrity chef so but unfortunately you know they give you just a little hint about um how, you know how important he it, it was you mm-hmm. knew it was important in the industry but not as much as um, as much as we discovered and it was um i had the opportunity who came to me to buy his original books he was the f- one of the first chef to uh, to write recipe books and um beautiful books actually uh so i bought these two books and, and um and I got starting to get obsessed with it. So when we had the opportunity to do a TV show, I said like, why don't we follow his footsteps? Which we which we did. Um, I mean, looking back at him, you know, his, um, his nickname is, um, you know, the 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 chef of the king and the king of the chefs, right. because he was really the first celebrity chefs. Uh, he was, you know, everybody was fighting for him from, you know, from Napoleon to um, uh, the, the Prince Regent in England, to, you know, the Tsar the of Russia wanted him. And he uh, cooked for them all. <laughs> he cooked for them all. But at the same time, he's... Responsible for so many things, I mean, he's the he's the one who put chefs in chefs whites. Uh, he's the one That's who right. put discipline in a in a kitchen.
2: And he he was also credited with creating the talk, the the chefs talk, the chefs perhaps. hat, yeah. yeah,
3: he created that because you know he, he wanted he wanted chefs to be um, you know respect, respected because chefs before were not respected. You know, they most of them were illiterate, and um, it's an amazing story. And um, as we filmed as we went along, and mostly on location, we were so lucky to go to so many beautiful. Beautiful places, and he went to the um, uh, to Saint Petersburg, where he cooked uh, for the Tsar. Actually, he never cooked for him because he wasn't there. But he um, <laughs> he went there, you know, almost killing himself uh, on a on a journey there. Um, we went on all these beautiful locations, and as we were going along, we realized um, how much um, a parallel parallel world it was between him and uh, and myself.
2: Oh, and um,
3: it was all a bit spooky, actually. We because um, I mean I knew a bit about him, not as much as we learned as we went along, but yeah, it was really um, an amazing uh, uh, journey to, to do for myself as well, to discover how hard it was and the condition those guys were working in a kitchen. I mean, if you were a chef in those days... Now we're, es- and, knife-
2: and, we're, and we're talking about the early 1800s. Yeah, yeah.
3: exactly. So you were ex- your life expectation would be under 30. You will... By the age of 26, 28, you would be dead because everybody was cooking on coal um, and it was no extraction in the kitchen, They was usually in basement and they're all dying of lung cancer and uh, that's what happened to Karim, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, he died early. What was about, he was about it 50 was, years old? Or? It
3: wasn't even 40, I think was 40, just, just forty years. Stu- uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, he- and he was the lucky one because he was looked after um, at the end of his year by, by some of his um, uh, you know fans, and it was quite funny. One of the we one other thing we did is um, at the end of his career he had a, a whole selection of um, ladies' fan whipping extreme amount of money for him to cook and bake for them <laughs> and um, we, we found out and actually we it's quite the same with me back in London so we asked one of my fans uh, it was um, a, a lady a proper lady a lady judge to host a dinner party and we recreated at the Royal Academy uh, where the Prince Regent used to live a proper banquet with all the pièce montée where Karen was uh, famous for.
2: Now explain to our listeners what a pièce montée is that he was so famous for.
3: Well, a pièce montée is an edible creation, sculpture. Um, it could be anything from mostly Karen's one was like almost like temples and buildings, who will sit on the middle of the table, and people could nibbles as they went along.
2: So sugar creations of, of architectural masterpieces. Yes. And they became masterpieces. And the sugar became masterpieces. Yeah, soccer. exactly.
3: And they are covered with like, a little shoe, little macaroons, or little um, treat that people can just pick. And it was interesting. So I, I had to do that. Uh, we, you know, I designed that uh, banquet table. And we had an historian who was there. And at the end of the dinner, you know, I, I walked in and, you know, we, we created a full-on menu from Karem. And the historian said, you know, you are Karem because he said you made exactly the same mistake of Karem. Um, of You're not an architect, so you don't understand, you know, your Greek, your Greek or your Venetian uh, column or your pagoda, Japanese pagoda. So you mixed up all the different styles. And that's what Karem used to do. Oh, if you look at this book... Nothing matched really the column at the wrong column for the roof of the building or something. And I did exactly the same thing without knowing, because obviously I'm not a trained architect, but I went for, you know, the artistic side of it. Mm. And it was interesting when uh, that, uh, um, that historian said that, he said, he said, you know what, you and Karem, you know, you are like separate at birth because he said you made exactly the same mistake than he did.
2: Hmm. Now a little background on Karem too, which I think differs from you. Hopefully, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, he was basically a, a abandoned as a child, right? He was an orphan and and was illiterate and went to work basically almost like a, a slave job in a, in a bread baker, a ba- bread bakery, right?
3: Yeah, that's what's happened. He came from a, a large family just at the end of the revolution, and um, they could not. F- feed him survey, um, his father took him in the street of Paris and his last word uh, to his son va, va mon petit où le Dieu te emporte," meaning you know go my son where um, God take you and um, he got picked up by a baker and um, he spent you know a few months uh, just uh, raising yeast and um, sifting flowers but his passion for baking he had two passions one was baking and being an architect and he could not become an architect because obviously he could not read he could not write so mm-hmm. he went every time he had a day off, uh, time off, he went to the Bibliothèque Nationale, the National Library in Paris, and um, he teach himself how to design buildings hmm. and to, how to learn to read and write as well. Interesting,
2: yeah. And his passion for baking. I mean, he just, he taught himself to, uh, taught himself to, to not only to bake. I mean, he, he was the master of meringues. He, he really set the, set the standard for so many things that are still used today.
3: It right. did. I mean, every, Most of everything, all the basic we know from puff pastries to shoe pastries uh, to meringue, which is well famous for, um, is thanks to him. And uh, looking back, it's just unbelievable. I mean, the same with, um, you know, he created at, at the end of his life the piping bag because they didn't have any piping bag in the past. But the most important thing who came out from um,
2: the pastry bag, piping bag being a pastry bag that you can create designs yeah. in small, you know, small holes with. Uh,
3: but the most important thing for me, who, came out of that it was really the uh, the quality of life and the chefs have in those days and how difficult it was you know they have no fridges they have uh, you know they didn't have any ovens or you know it it wasn't like today so when I hear young chef complaining or having a moan because you know it's too hot in the kitchen or this or that I can tell you you know I never never moan ever ever I mean I'm not a (laughs) moaner anyway but uh, it was just unbelievable the condition they were working for you know they have to grade their own sugar they have to you know try to make ice cream because of course the demand from the rich people they're working for was crazy you know mm. they were going like i want some ice cream piled up on the middle of the table when when freezers and fridge didn't exist so looking back at today you know it's um, really really um, amazing what they used to produce in those days
2: all right well now aside from just pastries, uh, was a a cook, a chef as well? I mean, he cooked uh, everything for particularly when he um, went to Russia. Is that correct? He, did he not do all the cooking?
3: Yes, he did. Um, later on in life, he started to get involved in um, in savory uh, cooking as uh-huh. well. Um, I mean, he invented the third course when when he went to Russia. Um, before he went to Russia, uh, the service à la française was where you served on big platters. All the food was on display in buffet, or it would be served on big platters. So
2: everything was out you, at once. It was out uh, at
3: once. And yeah. when he went to Russia, suddenly it was service à la russe, where everything is served on the plate. Like you see today in most um, top restaurants, right. the food arrived plated, beautifully presented. So when you came in back... Different,
2: in different courses.
3: In different, different courses. courses right. So e he bring that back to, the, uh, to Paris when he came back from, um, from his trip to Russia. He, he did that, and he did the same with the dessert. Forget about the pièce monté you ate on the middle of the table. He put the dessert on the plate, and he invented the third course. He invented the, um, the, the dessert.
2: Interesting. Wonderful. So glad he did. That's a great wrap-up to the we're meal. I we're glad right. to. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to hear more about your wonderful sweet endings, too, when we come back after a short break.
1: by Controller on heritageradionetwork.org No religion, I see no
3: light No religion, I see no light My last thoughts as they come to me are
1: Program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Washed rind cheeses are a fairly recent addition to the repertoires of artisanal cheesemakers in the United States. These cheeses tend to be stinkier than other types and are often high on the list of connoisseurs. Now, Whole Foods Market has come up with one of their own. The raw cow's milk cheese made by Sprout Creek Farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, is washed with six-point ale from Red Hook, Brooklyn. The beige, sticky rind deepens in color as it ages. The satiny ivory cheese within is mellow with a sweetly tangy bite and a grassy aroma. The current version features six-point diesel, which is in limited supply, so stop by and pick up some before it's gone. And point-of-origin cheese is sold exclusively at Whole Foods Market in New York, northern New Jersey, and Connecticut. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com.
2: We are back on a taste of the past and i'm talking with eric Landlard, a pastry chef a master pastry chef to the stars and to the royalty both pop royalty they say and real royalty <laughs> uh, who's the real royalty that you've uh baked cakes for or, or other things
3: well one of our um, um biggest fan in a uk royal family um what's the um the queen mother ah uh, yes uh who was a well, like we say in France, a bon viveur. You know, <laughs> she was still living in the old style. You know, when uh, she was um, accustomed to. and uh, she was a great fan of our 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 cooking. I mean, she knew about food, and um, the queen as well is the same. You know, she's very, very foodies. You know, you have to imagine. You know, they, you know, they got the best chefs working uh, working for them. But the queen mother was um, always uh, a great fan. She loved chocolate and raspberries. So she was great. And I um, I met her on her 101st birthday, Hmm. which was, um, you know, really phenomenal. It wasn't planned. And suddenly out of the blue, she came in, and um, when we delivered one of the cake for her, and um, she was, you know, lovely and very pleasant, and um, you know, we always got some beautiful letters uh, from um, from the palace of from her sign- and sign. And uh, this year, for the jubilee as well, we got asked um, to create um, a cake for um, her Majesty the Queen uh, for the jubilee, a jubilee cake. So we uh, and. So we, we created the recipe, and uh, the palace said, "Oh, can you bake one for the queen, and we will serve it to her for um, we will serve it to her for afternoon tea." So, and again, we got uh, you know this beautiful letter, and you can imagine when the letter turned up with a stamp, Buckingham Palace, <laughs> you get excited about it. And uh, but it was you know always handwritten, l- beautiful letters with um, a lovely card and saying thank you and how much they enjoyed and lovely details. But I was talking to a, sh- a chef at the time, and he was saying the queen. Today, it doesn't matter if it's six people for dinner, intimate dinner, or if it's 3,000 people for a huge banquet at Buckingham Palace. She's the one who put the final signature on the menu. She's getting involved of matching the wine and the food. And uh, she absolutely loves unpassionate about food
2: oh that's excellent and yeah.
3: uh, it's all done still in the old traditional way of uh, the court of europe where all the menus are in french and a subtitle in, uh, in english interesting so it's all done like it was done in, in russia in the old days or it was done in germany or um, all over europe in those days where you know french was the culinary language.
2: So Antonin Karem would have felt right at home cooking today for the uh, for the palace. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm sure we
3: would have loved uh, some of his, um, you know, some of his uh, recipe and creation. And that's what the uh, the Prince Regent did in um, in the UK. You know, he, um, he you know he, he beat Napoleon at the war, but I think the biggest humiliation he could do after throwing a lot and a lot of money, he got Napoleon's chef. And I think it was, it was even bigger yeah, that's right. victory compared to a, a military victory <laughs> to get um, Napoleon's chef to cook for him. Huh, but Karem didn't stay long. He didn't like him because wow. he said it was a bit of a, you know, of a, you know, he'd have no idea about food and he absolutely hated it. And after six months, he packed his bag and went back to France.
2: Oh, my goodness. Wow. Well, and it was Talleyrand uh, who actually was one of the first to kind of uh, – lasso Karim and and introduce him to all these uh, famous people he eventually cooked for. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, it it was. Um, Napoleon wanted to do some um, diplomacies. So he bought a castle um, down in the Loire Valley. And um, Napoleon absolutely hated it, eating in public and hated entertaining. So he told Tariman, I said, okay, you take that castle and you have to uh, entertain. And um, he took Karim with him. And it was um, caramel to create some uh, different menus. Uh, every day they have to entertain. Uh, all the biggest decision, and I think I think it's st- still the same today. Most of all the biggest de- you know, political decision didn't happen in um, uh, you know in a uh, 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 in the offices. In the office. It really happened over lunch or over dinner. And I'm sure it's the same today. I'm sure you know politicians do meet in public or something, but. It all happened when they sit down to good food, and that's how it, it used to it used to happen. Right. was the one who, who created and put it, put them together.
2: Well, now you were talking about how you um, created, recreated all of uh, Kerem's pièce de monte, And I actually watched you doing a mini version of Napoleon's, I think it was Napoleon's cake, or maybe Napoleon's son's cake, or somebody's cake on television, on one of your television series, with the meringue swans and the chestnut cream. And it was a, a Mont Blanc, right? It, Mont yeah. Blanc? Gâteau Mont Blanc, yeah. yeah, wonderful. Well, in your books, as I said, you, they are more approachable. They're not necessarily yeah, recreations do of these elaborate, labor-intensive um, desserts. But you do have, in your recent book "Tarted Up," you have uh, both savory and sweet tarts in there, quiches and and but yet sweet tarts as well. Right?
3: Exactly. And uh, well. I always I, w- I wanted to do that for um, for a little while because you know yes baking is back in fashion and um, in the UK and I'm sure it's you know it's the same here uh, in the US and uh, you know it's fantastic but savory baking I was a bit like the underdog of uh, of baking people always think you know stodgy. Um, stodgy pie P- pies
2: uh, and casseroles right? quiche,
3: quiche you can uh, you know quiche you can um, you know you can buy from the supermarket you know with uh, you know soggy pastries and everything like that so I, I i wanted to you know put it back in fashion i wanted to show to people in, in that book that actually it's not just for winter because people always assume savory baking is for winter so you can cook all year round and we you know make some beautiful savory tart and at the same time still of them looking great because I know it's nice to bake something and to put it at a table and get the wire factor. But if you look at the pictures in that book, you would be proud to put that savory tart or that pie on the table and you will get a wire factor because, you know, you, you can make them to look glamorous and fabulous. Oh, they absolutely.
2: You know, and you know what I also loved about um, this, your newest book in particular, is that there are several photographs of the work in progress uh, step by step, which I think is so important uh, because some people they they see the final the beauty shot, if you will you know the yeah. final beautiful pie you know sitting there or the cake sitting there, but they don't know necessarily how the dough is supposed to look or how the batter should look and you have these photographs um, split up and and it's it's very helpful I think to the home baker.
3: Yeah absolutely I mean uh, that's um, something I'm very um, you know proud of and um, we're very lucky with our publishers you know they they spend a lot of money on the pictures uh, and the step by step you know that's one of the comments we get the most because it's nothing worse than having a recipe you know without first the final pictures but it's great to be able to see the different step and uh, and you go like oh okay I didn't do anything wrong that's what it's supposed to look like that's right the pastry is supposed to look like that that's how you line um, a tart base and uh, and at the same time I like giving more tips you know I love love bringing flavors so you know if you're going to make a short crust pastry okay don't just make a shortcrust pastry. You can add some fresh herbs to it. You can, uh, you know, put some zest of um of uh, lemon or orange, and you know you can jazz it up as well, just mm-hmm. to boost and uh, make it you know, the final produce much more exciting.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, your television series are all very educational. T- I mean, you you have uh, you obviously have fun with what you do because it shows it it comes across on the screen. Um, and what I like too, though, is that it's also kind of no-nonsense. You're having fun with it, but yet the instructions are all very clear. You can really learn from watching you cook on television, I have to tell you, and I'm I'm very impressed with that. Well, I'm um,
3: glad you say that because that's, um, that's really the whole idea behind it. You know, I've been, for far too long, I've been listening to people who've been saying, you know, oh, baking is too difficult, I haven't got the time, I haven't got the equipment, I can't get the ingredients. And that's, I go on TV and I say to people, listen, you can do it. I mean, obviously we're not cooking it's not making us chew, so you need to follow the recipe like we say in france you know uh, baking is like chemistry That's but right. if you are following the recipes and in my book on the same in a tv show i always make sure then everything you can get it in a supermarket or even better it is in everybody's um, uh, kitchen cupboard so i'm not going to start to use some ingredients and people can't get or they have to go online. You know, I want to make it accessible. I want people to understand they can do it. And, um, and it's great. That's the main feedback we get. People said, I watch your show. The next thing I did is um, I put my apron on and I made a cake. <laughs> and that's, that's so rewarding for, uh, for me. I, I really, uh, really enjoyed that.
2: Now, what is the name of the series that's playing currently on British television?
3: Uh, it's called Baking Mad with Eric.
2: Baking Mad with Eric Baking on Mad with Eric. It, Channel 4 television. And it's on and
3: Channel 4 as well and uh, you can get it on YouTube as well. There is different clips um, including some very um, uh, foreign version of it uh, with some very bad subtitle. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the Italian one is my favorite one. As c- the voiceover is someone like who sounds like 85 or something. You know? and, uh, It doesn't, well, it, it doesn't it, match me at all.
2: <laughs> it was on YouTube where I discovered the, the Glamour puds, meaning Glamour Puddings, right? Yes. Um, where you you did the history And you actually As you said You did a uh, You know A walking tour Ten episodes Going to On location To different places um, That had Part of the history Of Antonin Karem And and I was So pleased To have been able To watch that and, and learn a little bit more Having read history of him But to see it Come to life On your show was Was truly a treat And um, and, I, and I love cooking from your books as well and from your television shows. <laughs> thank you. And I thank you Great. so much for joining me today. It has been a true pleasure. Eric Landlord, and his new book is called Tart It Up. This has been A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio here on Heritage Radio Network.org.